Factory Settings is a podcast exploring politics, culture, relationships, mental health, addiction, and media through the lens of how our built-in biases affect the way we consume information and form opinions. I'm Bridget Fettesy. And I'm Jerry Montgomery. This is Factory Settings. Every worldview has an origin story. And we're live. This is Factory Settings. Welcome to Factory Settings. You do belong on NPR. I'm Jaron Montgomery. And I'm Bridget Fettesy. And this is Factory Settings. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't it sound like an NPR show? I, I don't listen to NPR. No, that's not true. I, exactly, which I, gets us right into the Factory Settings. <laughs> No. What? Right? Why did we start this podcast? What are factory settings? Who are we? Who are we? So I'm Bridget Fettesy. Some of you might know me from Twitter or Joe Rogan or comedy, writing. Dumpster fire. Dumpster fire. Walk-ins welcome. There's a million. Playboy. Playboy. Yep. I've been around in the media ecosphere. And I am married now. To me, Jerry Montgomery. Many of you will not know me, (laughs) (laughs) except maybe as Mr. Fetissy, if you're in Bridget's locals community. Uh, I am a associate marriage and family therapist and recovery coach. I work with uh, a lot of young men dealing with substance use and mental health issues. Uh, I also help with a teen program for teens struggling with mental health issues. And I'm also in recovery. That's where we met. That's where we met. So we met in recovery. We're both, I'm more of a downer and he's more of an upper. upper. I want to like go, go, go. (laughs) Which is a nice balance. I'm a disorganized junkie and he's a tweaker. I am a tweaker. (laughs) I want every little thing organized. I like to make lists. Everything has a proper place. But you've actually helped me with that a little bit. Your sort of free-spirited <laughs> approach to life and organization has, has helped ease some of my anxiety when it comes to obsessively organizing. He calls it charming now, but we'll see how that holds up over the years and decades. I am convinced that it will hold up. We're only in the year, the, the newlywed phase. The, the new, yeah, that's true. Newlywed phase. Although we've been together for several years now. Yes, but we're still newlyweds. We've been married a year. We started this podcast, Factory Settings, because we are often either talking with people in the in the world, whether it's through Jaren's work or through my work and DMs and live streams. A lot of the topics come up around mental health and recovery and media bias, your our own biases. And we thought we'd start this podcast just to kind of help us process the world around us, but also to address some of the questions that we both get rather consistently. And I'm not saying we have any answers. It's really just what what's worked for us, I guess. Yeah, it's a, a really a place to sort of share our experiences and hopefully in the future be able to uh, seek some listener feedback and answer questions and and just sort of share what we've learned so far with the hopes that maybe it can help somebody else. I mean, maybe that's, I don't know if that's an arrogant goal or an altruistic goal, but 
I think you sort of hit it on the head. We've we've had a lot of various experiences and trials and tribulations, and we're both late bloomers. Very we, late bloomers. You said we're in recovery. You know, we didn't find each other until you know we were our forties, basically our forties. We didn't come into our careers till basically we were in our forties, late thirties, forties, yeah, late thirties, early forties. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, I mean, I don't want to assume we have all the answers. Like, that's not what we're here. We're not here to just say, hey, here's what to do, but just sort of process what we've been through. And, and process what we're going through. Yeah. Often, right? I'm I'm also currently 23 weeks pregnant as we sit here and record this. Yeah, this was something we never, we did not think was going to happen. No. Right? And just, I think also one of the things you and I end up talking about so often and that we hope to really explore is media literacy and just how these social medias and our news media and our interaction with it coming from the places that we might be biased towards. And this is also where you and I, I think, come from very different places because aside from just being different, having different drugs of choice... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we also come from different socio-political <laughs> backgrounds. Yes, or... completely different. And I come from a very blue-blood Yankee liberal family. Yeah, whereas I'm a very conservative, bootstrap, upper-middle-class. Yeah. So some of this podcast, on top of evaluating maybe some of the bigger bigger issues that I think pertain to anyone, no matter what side of the political spectrum they might be on or where they fall on it. But also just it's hilarious evaluating the media because we will laugh at how we will approach a story automatically from our, our default settings where I'll just even though I know it's a bias, I'll still be like, oh, these Republicans are so heartless. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm guilty of the same thing. There's definitely that, that knee-jerk reaction to want to defend you know, my side, right, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term. Even if I don't identify completely with all the stances or views on that side, it, you know, you, I find myself wanting to defend the indefensible at times just because <laughs> they're on my side, right? So that's something I have to be aware of. And that's, I think, where media literacy and what you talked about earlier comes into play, right? Like really being able to do your due diligence on something. And, and it's tough these days because there's so much information out there that we really don't have time to research every one of them. And that's, that's where the factory settings come into play, right? It's how it's, they influence all those things, how, you know, our biases, um, what we decide to research, what we decide to not research, what fits into our worldview, I mean, all these all these factory set in settings create these little like heuristics, right? That we use, like rules of thumb or educated guesses or trial and error, like little little ways that we process the world, right? Like shortcuts to process the world, and they're not always accurate. They're not always right. They're just easy. I I agree. So, factory settings the the concept came up when I was thinking a lot about. I couldn't think of a way to describe what was happening to me as I came online, got dragged into the culture wars and suddenly started evaluating all of these things that I took for granted and believed that I had never really 
evaluated or examined. I think that process started with recovery. Obviously, getting sober in 2013, you start looking at all of these beliefs you hold about yourself, who you are. I thought I was a party girl. I th- all of these lies that I told myself. So there, that process started when I got sober. But then as far as it relates to the culture and things, the factory settings aspect, which is those, it's almost the nature versus nurture. It's the nurture part of your upbringing that you have no control over. There are parts of our culture, and Alan Watts was saying this in his talk I was listening to yesterday, you won't even know what you just take for granted because of the culture you were raised in for us being American till you start studying other cultures and learning and other and visiting other cultures and living in other cultures. So there's those things and then just being a kind of child of divorce, but getting thrown into the culture wars, I'd never really realized how all pervasive the left-wing ideology was in media, Hollywood. It was like the water I swam in, so I never, I took it for granted how much I never had to think about it. Michael Malice pointed this out to me, I think. So it was politics was the impetus for your, the concept of factory settings. Uh, It was, yes, it was politics, but it was also just the default settings that we have that, form our worldview so obviously a lot of that's political i just thought i mean i was thinking about how i don't think i ever knew anyone who is pro-life until my 30s politically pro-life maybe some people who as i joke are like pro-life in the sheets but pro-choice on the streets like they're pro-life for themselves but they're not gonna necessarily make that choice for other people sure or have that opinion about the larger political, you know, body politic and, and the, the, the argument, they might just be that way for themselves. But I don't think I knew anyone who was politically pro-life until well into my thirties. I think my whole entire concept of gun control and guns really, that's, if you were to ask me, what's one of the things that I completely changed my mind about it, it's that, and only because lack of knowledge lack of exposure to guns, not even lack of, just only being exposed to anti-gun rhetoric for most of my entire life. And then also just some stuff in my life growing up where guns were were wielded dangerously and with like, I don't know, with like flair and, <laughs> and yeah, they were scared. They were used to They were scary. So I I grew up with no sense of them being something that was like self-defense. It was always something that was threatening and dangerous. I think this sort of brings up a good point with regards to factory settings and them sort of being these little heuristics or ways to sort of organize knowledge or information. And What's um, a heuristic? it's, It's sort of a shortcut that lets us base decisions on something without having to think about it too mm. much. Like it is like a, a, a rule of thumb, I said earlier, or a like tr- an trial and error. <laughs> right, right. Like, like, you know, try to drink half your body weight in water a day or try to show up early for, you know, a meeting. Sort of simple things that allow us not to have to overly complicate decisions, right? 
Yeah. Not always accurate, but they're beneficial and time savers. But what one of those heuristics is called the availability heuristic. And what you were talking about just reminded me of that is that if you are in an environment where you're constantly told, you know, guns are bad and people are dying all the time, you're likely to believe that far more people are killed by guns each year than are, right? I think this came up with uh, not long ago in a survey when they asked liberals how many black men were killed by the police uh, each year. And many of the responses are a great many of them were in the thousands, right? Right. When in actuality, we're talking about 10 or 20. Uh, I don't remember the exact sort of numbers, but that's, that's a, a sort of common flaw in the sort of heuristic process, right? But, and, and you're talking about that kind of reminded me of that. And if that was your worldview, if you believed that thousands of unarmed people were being gunned down in the streets each year, yeah, I could see how you would have those conclusions about gun control. Well, that's why I want to talk about a lot of these factory settings that we have, because the other thing that I'm seeing is a general lack of compassion for everyone's worldview. There's just a bad faith take. And in some respects, I get a lot of pushback because I'm very much like, why can't everyone get along? Yeah. But, and some people say, you can't give these people an inch, whether... It's one side or the other, and I understand. But I really try to imagine putting myself in someone else's shoes and drawing the conclusions that they would draw, whether they're false, if they've been fed a media diet of lies and they have their fear constantly being triggered and they're not doing any kind of self-reflection or work to get outside of that or evaluate their own biases, I can understand how people come to these conclusions. It's like you and I were saying when we were watching King Richard, just watching them in their youth in South Central and how that would affect your worldview, being in that much violence constantly, having always gang violence around you people dying how that affects the way you view your country and your fellow man and yourself and how do you find your way out of that if there doesn't seem to be any way out of it and so these are things I've been long fascinated with like even since I was in junior high because I went to a junior high at one point when I went to like a million different schools going to many different schools exposed me to a lot of this Being the new girl, I think, made me really fascinated with this idea of how you're shaped by your socioeconomic status and your environment and your parents and whether they're together or not. And trauma, obviously, is a big one. But I went to a school and it was in uh, North Minneapolis, which is basically, I think, the roughest part of Minneapolis at that point when I was living there. And it was fascinating to me to just realize I was in like a fish out of water. I was in a completely different, in the same city, but in a completely different culture with almost a different language. That was really eye-opening to me at like 12 years old. Do you remember some of the bigger shocks or culture shocks that happened when you made that switch or that transition? I mean, I was the I was the only, you know, one of a couple white kids. So just being the minority 
and being aware of that and being called, whether it was like Wera or, you know, names for being white and then feeling like I didn't belong in the world and I actually couldn't go into that part of the world. Like I wasn't welcome there. I couldn't freely move about their culture and their world in the way that I could maybe in my neighborhood. Do you remember when you first started trying to empathize or understand how or why people were acting the way they were, be it towards you or just moving in the world? Um, I've gotten in trouble for saying this before, but I remember really wanting to be black when I was 12 in that school. And I was jealous of all of my black friends who couldn't, that I couldn't, that I didn't fit in. Was it just about fitting in? I think it was partially about fitting in, but it was also like having access to a world that I felt like I didn't know and I wanted to know. And then, and always wanted to travel. When I was a little kid, I used to come home. It was around the same time. I would come home and watch these videos about, like traveling around Europe and I just always wanted to, I don't know if it's the product of moving every year and a half and being like the, the outsider. I mean, that's traumatic on some level. I, I, I hated my parents for it, but I, I don't know if that's what made me curious about where all these people were coming from and then just seeing so many different environments in, in those years And then going from inner city schools to like the whitest suburb in Minnesota where there it was like the complete opposite, no diversity. And when we were living in Connecticut, when I was before that, before we moved to Minnesota, we were in it was a very wealthy area. So we were poor compared to most of the people. This was like Fairfield County where it's like finance people commute to New York City and lots of international students because it was so close. The proximity was so close. So it was still, even though it was a wealthy area, it was close enough to New York City and it was international enough that it was still so diverse. It was like, it was something that like the biggest culture shock to me was moving to a suburb in Minnesota that was like all white. That was crazy. I remember sitting with my brother in a literal cornfield waiting for our mom to pick us up after our like tour of the school and us being like, what the hell? Even when we were in our small town where my father's side of the family's from, there's still like a huge Portuguese influence. There's a huge Brazilian influence. There's Latin American influence that's just pervasive in the culture. So it, it, even though it's a very small town and like it's white for sure, there still felt like there was more diversity, even in my high school that I went to in like this tiny town in Rhode Island. It was it was a public high school and it was it was diverse, but nothing as white as that Minnesota experience. My background's quite the opposite of that. Actually, I I I went to the same private school much of my childhood till I think sixth or seventh grade. I grew up with the. Same people. Once I moved over to here from Hawaii when I was a kid, I had one black kid in the school. His name was Corey. And we didn't think about it. I didn't, you know, 
make a connection that he was any different than us. We were because we were all kids in private school, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't think about it. I I fit in for the most part, and then I remember going to public school, and suddenly you know they're busing people in, and I'm taking the you know public transportation to school, and I can't wear certain shoes or certain colors, and just. You know, it was the biggest sort of shock for me. I'd come from this sort of bubble, mm. um, white, upper, middle class. You know, this is what I was going to be like. My path was carved out. I was going to go to this school, and then I would go to college, and then I would do that. And suddenly to be upended and put it in this public school from, you know, 300 people to 3,000 people or more was just shocking. And it's interesting because listening to you tell that story, I think the root of so much psychological suffering is acceptance, the desire to be accepted either by others around you or even more importantly, ourselves, right? And that's, I think that's that's sort of key to a lot of this is an understanding a lot of people just want to be accepted. Yeah, I think I see that so much. And I see how social media in particular preys on that. And I was talking about how on Twitter the other day, I was saying, you you know, don't let this place ruin you and try and spend less time here. And someone said, no, this is a great, a great place for you to test those things out. And I just feel and I said to this person, I am neither intelligent nor arrogant enough to believe that I can outsmart billions of dollars of research and development that are devoted to preying on instincts of mine that are in my lizard brain. That I'm not, I mean, biases I'm not even aware of because they're biochemical, thousands of years of evolution. But I think, but you, it feels like you are pretty aware of much of the manipulation that's going on. But you right? can be aware of it and still fall prey to sure, it, which I, is the danger of sure. social media. I wait, when I wake up in the mornings and I fight that urge to get on Twitter just so I can be outraged, right? Like what, what fresh hell can I find on Twitter this morning to outrage me? Picking it up, knowing full well, I'm going to come across someone with some inflammatory response and it's going to get me sort of fired up. It's going to satisfy whatever that sort of dopamine primal tech. primal, yeah. Just but a, that's, a, and that reminds me so much of drug use as well. And that whole concept of self-knowledge avails us nothing. We can know that we're drinking too much or weed is, you know, stopping us from becoming the person that we're supposed to be or that drugs are bad for us and it doesn't matter. I I can know that Twitter is bad for me and then there are days where I'll go on there with the full intention of going on for 20 minutes and two hours will go by. And in that two hours, I'm losing time that I could have learned another language or read a book or all the things that I'm ashamed that I didn't do last year. Yeah, that, it, it's tough because I think there's part of us, me, myself, that needs to be kind to myself and allow for the possibility or the fact that I'm going to spend some time on things that aren't the most productive, right? I'm not going to be productive every waking moment of my life, right? So how do I find, I don't know, I don't, necessarily like the word balance, but how do I find a place where I'm okay with spending a little bit of time doing this and still keeping enough time for myself to be improving, right? Or learning or bettering or connecting, you know, becoming a better therapist or a better husband or maybe a father, 
becoming more connected to my community, like all, all those things, like, right, where do these things all fit in, right? Because it's very easy to be critical of ourselves. I mean, that's, that's that instinct to sort of fit in or always be using our time to optimize. Yeah, to optimize, right? The life hacks, right? Like, you know, always be closing, right? There's, there's, there's so much pressure to constantly be using every minute of our day to be productive, right? And that's, I think that can be damaging to some degree. And I'm a, I'm a slave to that uh, to a large degree. And because I'm a perfectionist, I never live up to those standards. I'm, I'm constantly telling myself, uh, you know, you could have done more, you should have done this. Uh, why didn't you do that? And so that's a battle within myself to sort of be kind. It's not easy. Do we deserve that, though? To be kind to ourselves? I mean, yes, <laughs> I, on the one hand. <laughs> or do we deserve to be perpetually punishing ourselves? Not perpetually it's... punishing ourselves, but there is an aspect of I'm definitely hard on myself for sure, but I don't necessarily... I struggle because I wasted so much time. Sure. I think part of I think part of me being hard on myself for wasting time on things that I feel are akin to another addiction that's just replacing my old addictions comes from knowing that I spent decades sitting at a bar and doing things that led me nowhere and wasted so much time that I could have been doing all of the things. So there is a there is an aspect of feeling like I'm making up for lost sure. time. So let me reframe then and, and maybe say that it's not, I, I'm not trying to argue that it should be sort of one or the other, right? I think there are things we use to motivate ourselves, right? Some of those things can be self-criticism or punishing ourselves or trying to make up for a lost time, right? I think those can be used to produce healthy ends, right? I think when it goes to the extreme, um, where it creates more suffering than your life than 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 good, that's when the sort of problem arises, right? And we're constantly walking that edge, or I feel like I'm kind of walking that edge. Yeah, I think so many people struggle with this. Yeah, with finding that balance because it is. I was thinking. Well, I was thinking about the Alan Watts talk that I listened to yesterday, just about how we think we can control our thoughts any more than we can control our breathing or our heart beating. And yes, we have a certain amount of control over how we respond to those thoughts, but his whole point that everything is just happening and being in that happening and not being, you know, one of the things that my sponsor said to me in, in early recovery that I struggle with, and this is the balance of, I think we're talking about is the idea that there's no there there. Mm. I'm always struggling to get there and I'm not here in this moment. And so much of what I want to do with this podcast is talk about a lot of these things, whatever topic it might be. We have many, many themes that we want to cover. Addiction, Republican, Democrat, small family, big family, divorce, education, bubble versus worldly, depression and anxiety, attachment styles, big T versus little T trauma, therapy, spirituality and religion, comedy and a sense of humor, being late bloomers, gamers, nerds, meditation, health and wellness, grief and loss, intimacy and kids and hope and artistry 
and yeah. just There's media, a- media literacy. But I think picking one of those topics and just talking about how how it's affected us, what were our biases. I have letters to my friends where I'm saying I will never do drugs and never drink and only idiots do that. I was so against it when I was a kid and I was such a good kid. I really was a straight A student and I worked super hard and all I wanted to do was go to Harvard or go to a really good school and that was my big goal and travel and I just, I don't know. I got, I, I think you and I share the experience of having our parents get divorced and then our lives taking yeah, very different turns. Very different turns. Yeah. I was kind of cruising along. Yeah. I mean, we were moving a lot, but I was still getting straight A's even moving. Yeah, it's interesting. I was, I feel like I didn't have to think about my life very much until sort of that divorce. And then especially when I changed schools, that was really sort of a moment where I really felt like my whole thinking process became disturbed and I had to I had to sort of reorient myself to a new world. But to go back to what we were talking about of about this podcast or getting out of it, for me, I think some of it is being able to put myself in position to have my ideas challenged and be uh kind of vulnerable for lack of a better word. I as someone who is sort of caught up in appearance, I think this podcast offers me an opportunity to really confront that, right? More people are going to listen to this than I can talk to, right? Even if it's, you know, only a couple dozen people, right? So to have at least those views or thoughts or experiences put out there, whether they help someone or someone wants to challenge them or provide feedback or criticism, uh, I, I need to be open to that. I need to be willing to sort of listen to that or hear that. That's important to me. Yeah. Although then it gets into the problem that I run into constantly, which is just so much noise. Well, yes. And, then, and, and that, <laughs> that will come in as to how, how, how do we then, or how do I then filter out the content, right? Because obviously I can't. But that's true with anything now. Well, that, this gets into, this would tie back in neatly into sort of media literacy. Like how do we consume knowledge? How do we consume information, right? What kind of rules of thumb do we use to exclude certain, you know, information, whether it's, you know, okay, this person I found unreliable, so I'll just discard their stuff. This outlet I found reputable, so I'll at least, you know, give their stuff a glance. This stuff I know I need to fact check or research even more. And where's the, where's the investment in time worth it, right? Because we could spend, you could spend most of your day researching all this stuff. Do you think people are addicted to the news and politics? Yes, I think more more than ever. I think more than ever, though, part of me, what comes up for me right now is that you could, I'm wondering if it could be replaced with something else. They're addicted to news and media and outrage, but I think, you know, we could replace that addiction with something else probably, right? I think this, it's, it's what we're seeing now is just, you know, we're the appeal to the lowest common denominator, tapping into our most basic sort of instincts. But I think that's probably happened on a lot of levels, just in smaller groups. This we're just seeing on a mass scale, so that we're all outraged on the same page. But I could be wrong about that. Hmm. It feels to me like since I've 
I guess like 2013, it feels to me that everyone has been drawn off the sidelines of perhaps being apolitical into everything being politicized. Sure. I th- it, interesting. Even this, we spend a lot of time online, on Twitter, in those spheres, and we really do get an opportunity to see the vocal minority, right? I'm, but I see it in real life with yeah. people who aren't online. And I hear from people who aren't very online, capital V, capital O, Yeah, that they are experiencing frustration with everything, even like Instagram getting ruined by politics and places where they felt like politics hadn't invaded the space yet. And it's everywhere. I think that coming on the heels of Trump and entering into a pandemic, it replaced this binary that really came up out of Trump with now it's all about like vaccines. And I mean, it's, it's craziness. And this is another thing that I can't go anywhere without people talking about that. It's all because it's sure. affecting everybody's actual real life. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's the hyperpolarization that we've seen since Trump, since probably but before Trump, Trump affected. The irony is that Trump affected people psychologically, but I would argue he actually maintained the status quo that we had all lived with in that, it wasn't really affecting most people's daily lives. Maybe some, maybe some, perhaps like the dreamers. But his, but you're talking about his presidency and his policies did not affect most people's daily lives. Not in the way that we're seeing with the lockdowns, the pandemic, the vaccine mandates, things like this that are affecting millions and millions of people and their children. And obviously it's a pandemic, so it's unprecedented, but it still seems like the reason people are so hyper-focused on all of this and talking about it is because government is very much in their lives in a way that I don't think it was maybe ever <laughs> yeah and this is the the sort of mixture of politics and culture right that it's they there's it's so they're so permeated within one another that you can't separate the two yeah there's i mean when do you re- recall in maybe since world war ii when americans were asked to sacrifice in ways in which they've had to sacrifice and and do things that were mandated and yeah and talk about a different time then versus now right where sort of everybody getting on the same page behind a cause and and uh, compared to now where it's almost like two countries yeah and this seems to be tearing at the fabric of our society and it is another thing it's a, it's amazing to me it's amazing how i can make a pretty milk toast statement for instance something like i i just i understand why people are vaccine hesitant i understand why people are afraid particularly people who they're afraid of the of the virus in a way that might not be logical because of the amount of media they consume or just have on in the background or what their bubble looks like and people will still come at me yeah. and be like, yeah, but <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter. Like, but can we try and see where someone might be coming to these conclusions? It's like, no, you can't give these commies an inch. No, Well, I mean, and this is this, you know, brings us back to sort of 
factory settings or confirmation bias or that ability, like what happens, you know, when you are forced to confront something that doesn't fit into your worldview? I think William James, I think he's the father of American psychology. He had a a quote I'm going to butcher, and it's along the lines of, most men think they are thinking when they are merely rearranging their prejudices, right? Mm. Like we, we all think we're thinking and assimilating this information, but really we're just shuffling around, you know, the same beliefs just into sort of a different puzzle, right? So, you know, you, you talked about the, the vaccine things that you can't be like, okay, I support the vaccines. I'm against vaccine mandates to someone that believes, you know, you're killing millions of people if you choose not to get vaccinated that first that second part of the against vaccine mandates can't be assimilated into their worldview mm. because if they were to accept that what then has to be changed what like what what piece does that pull out right in the jenga puzzle of their worldview or their mind you know like that that it would it would lead you to have to restructure a whole bunch of things and that's that's too much for most people to ask there's just a I mean, a distinct lack of self-awareness or self-reflection. And I think some of that's because it's just easier. Yeah, it is easier. I I would say I wish that I lived in that kind of tribal oblivion. I'm je- I'm honest and not and not in a condescending way. I'm yeah. jealous of I'm jealous of of people who are that certain of their principles and that certain of the ground upon which they stand yeah. psychologically. And part of the reason that I really love and I'm excited to do this podcast with you is because, and I don't know if it comes from being an addict and not trusting myself and generally not trusting other people, but I I fundamentally do not trust my own mind to be honest with me because I'm highly aware of the ways in which I can fool myself, have fooled myself can lie to myself, can lie to others, can live a double life. Those are things that unraveling in early sobriety was painful to confront. Just And seeing even those character defects now still playing out at times when I'm being manipulative or passive-aggressive or shady. I was so shady. That it was yeah. part of my entire being. And assuming that everybody is that shady because I'm shady. Yeah. Humility, I think stood out there, right? The, the ability to acknowledge when you might be wrong. But everyone thinks they're so right. And they all think that they're on the right side of history. This is what's fascinating to me about this time. And someone must be right. I, well, there. I mean, there is a, a truth out there, and then there, are everyone's sort of subjective interpretations of the truth. Am I just so like captain of the fence right, riding team? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you might be. No, but I think it's important to look at, th- be able to look at things from multiple sides. Interesting, even trying. Like, I want to use the term both sides, right? Like, there are more than just two sides to all these things, right? Even I, I, I find myself stuck in this sort of binary, right? That both sides, there are a bunch of different sides. It is a nuanced. There are. But I also think we live in a natural world that's filled with lots of binaries as sure. well. And so again, it makes it simpler. It, so much of this, of these, these concepts just make things simpler to go through life. This or that, you know more either or than and 
But because I've had my mind changed, I, I guess maybe people who are raised to evaluate their principles, their first principles, and really come from that place, they have more certainty in where they're they're coming from. I I wasn't. I did. I was thrown into the culture wars and and then sobriety as well. And when I first got sober, I didn't even know what my values were. It was something that took me years to figure out and ask myself and question. I didn't, and let alone like what my principles yeah. of government I'm, I'm are, still whatever. All yeah. That stuff out. I mean, I hear stuff from anarchists and I'm like, yeah, yeah I get it. Checks out. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> no, great. It's, it's, I mean, you bring up a good point. I think I'm the same way. This speaks to the late bloomers we were talking about, even with regards to sort of, worldviews or principles or values. I, had I not gotten sober, I'm not sure how much reflection I would have been able to do. And had I not gotten sober, I never would have gotten into the field of psychology. And the reason I got into the field of psychology, one was so I could help people, but also is to understand my own mind because I'm a fucking crazy person, right? I, I feel like a crazy person a lot of the time, right? Like my thoughts I are know I'm a crazy bananas. person. And, and, Sam Harris actually talks about this. He actually, uh, I remember a quote from one of his talks years ago that I, I heard where he says, the quality of your mind determines the quality of your life, right? The quality of your mind determines the quality of your life. And that always stuck with me. Because to go back to your talking about Alan Watts, that you can't control that stuff. That's true. You can't control that stuff, right? It all, it, that's, it's all just a, appearing in consciousness, right? They're all just appearances in consciousness. But you can impact the weight those thoughts have right. on your daily life, right? And how much they affect you, right? I loved what Alan Watts said yesterday about how you can only preach to the ego. Yeah, he's, uh, yeah, Alan Watts, uh, something else. I loved that line. You can only preach to the ego. I think that's what he said, yeah. something like that. Pretty sure he was one of us. <laughs> <laughs> but he did, he understood. And, and that's, that's what I love my therapist for, actually, is that she comes from a different culture and it's Nordic and she sees the fundamental absurdity in all of it. And she understands my, worldview and that's where even the word fetishy and the whole concept behind that word that I made up was the feeling that God is laughing at you and that the, they're underneath all of this gravity there's a certain level of absurdity that you can't ignore <laughs> sure that we're these small little infinitesimal specks of dust swirling on this rock in this infinite sort of space right at perspective it's crazy even listening to that talk yesterday while i was walking the alan watts talk and he got into a lot of that just how small we are in the universe and it's if you really stop and comprehend it it's so mind-blowing and miraculous and I would like to live in that state of wonder and not, but it's so much easier to get caught up in petty banter on Twitter. Yeah. Well, but, and, but <laughs> even that sort of. But I wonder if that's a, a, a defensive reaction to the enormity and miraculousness and like my mortality. Yeah. It's interesting because it, 
all of these things we're talking about, Alan Watts' sort of way of looking at life and, you know, Sam Harris's, like these are all worldviews. Like no, no one of these is more right than the other. They are all ways to move through the world, right? Some just ring truer to us than others, right? There's, you know, some people want to be the hero of their own journey and the world revolves around them and they move through life that way and it works, right? It's it's what what can you move through life and feel congruent with, right? I think we move through life for myself very feeling very incongruent at times, right? Between my actions and my sort of internal thoughts, what I think I should be doing, what I think I should be feeling, you know, those are at odds sometimes with what I'm doing externally. And that incongruency creates a lot of suffering. So how do I become more congruent in the world? How do I sort of reconcile those two parts of me that are doing, you know, the things I should be doing and then the part of me that's, you know, doing things that I shouldn't be doing, right? How do I, how do I reconcile those two things? And that's, that's tough. It's not always easy. I don't have the answers for that. That's what this podcast that's is what, for. That's what this podcast is, is for, is to talk about all that stuff. It's to talk about whether it's a big news story that has the country or, or world divided. So what do you want to get out of this? Gosh, that's a, it's a, big, that's a big question. Um, I think at sort of the core of that or the root of that answer is a deeper understanding of my sort of belief structure and how I arrive at the conclusions I do. And also, I think the breadth of my experiences or our experiences can be helpful. I think it's important for people to be able to listen to others and maybe identify it. Right. And this probably comes from my AA background, right. About like spreading the message and hearing your story and you know, your share is not just about you. It's right. You're speaking to a newcomer or so that maybe one person in the room can go, you know what? Aha. Like that, speaks to me, right? That speaks to me. And maybe that's hubris or arrogance that thinks that's a possibility, but I don't think so. I really think there is a component in the program that talks about being of service that I feel this spot podcast can be of service to people. I don't think it's necessarily hubris because it's what saved me was hearing things that I related to more than, I mean, therapy has been a very integral part doing actual work, not just talking, but doing, working those steps and looking at that stuff, putting pen to paper. But I do think that part of what kept me sober and in the program and on that path was hearing stories from people that I identified with and saying, yes, that person experienced many of the same things that I did and they're still here. And they didn't commit suicide or <laughs> OD or they're a useful family member and, and member in society. And I see people who are really attempting to get outside of that matrix of their own mind and self-absorption because at my core, I'm just so self-absorbed. Yeah. I'm just a little tyrant in my own kingdom. Yeah. Left to my own devices, I am completely <laughs> self-absorbed. There are a great many things I have to do daily to get myself out of self. I always think about now, I laugh often about you and I 
and contemplating the fact that we're randomly and miraculously having a child, which, as you mentioned earlier, was something neither one of us ever expected and, in fact, came to total acceptance about. And we were like, we're good. We're good. And you looking at Jaron has a he got me a it's from the third step prayer in the program, a line of it. Uh, inscribed on wood and it says relieve me of the bondage of self and one morning when we were talking about having a child and being self-absorbed and all of this Jaron was like I meant when I said relieve me of the bondage of self I was meaning like so I can have more time to meditate (laughs) (laughs) not not something like a child which will actually take me out of self because it's 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 difficult for me to imagine anything greater than myself on some level right which is why i'm intellectually resistant to the idea of god Um, but then but i have but i have (laughs) you right which which is you know an amazingly beautiful part of my life right so i can imagine something greater at least equal or greater than myself in you but a child feels next level it is next (laughs) level like this is like (laughs) it is i i remember getting hope my dog and it was a disaster for the first six months because she was used to being on the street and doing whatever she wanted and i was used to doing whatever i wanted and i have forgotten just exactly how hard that lifestyle change was for me but it was hard having this thing that I had to walk more than once and she was a crazy puppy and deal with and think about and take care of and keep alive. And yeah. it was massive lifestyle change. Yeah. And, I co- and I had to send her away to like boarding school for dogs to get trained because she was so out of her mind. But she didn't want to be on a leash. She was used to doing like it was Hope's world and we were all just living in it and she's still like that. But that I I have been thinking a lot about that lifestyle change because that's the now multiply that by you know a million and that's a child. <laughs> yeah, it, it's yeah, it's hard for me to wrap my brain around what that's going to be like. Cause Every I've, time I walk out the door and it's easy and simple and it's not like a carriage and I need this and yeah. that and do I have and do I have the diaper bag well, and the bait and like the. Yeah, the baby Bjorn, and that's it. I can I can walk out the house right now and know you're not going to poop yourself, <laughs> and you're going to be able to feed yourself and do all the things that require you to sort of stay alive. I might poop myself. <laughs> fair, fair enough. And even hope to some degree is going to be fine for a fair amount of time, but that's just not the case with the baby. No, for for like right? decades. How how long before they can sort of take care of themselves? What age are we talking about? Like, like four? Yeah, five. <laughs> when can we leave them alone? Uh, they're pretty pretty reliant on you for a long time. <laughs> I mean, twenty seven. I think is the average now. Twenty seven is when they can finally be left alone. <laughs> I feel like that's the average age that people are leaving their their house, their parents' house. Seven. Wow, I'm going to be an old man, an old man. Yeah. So we're going to take you on a journey with us of new parenthood and new marriage and sobriety and navigating a crazy world of 
pandemics and elections. Whole new world. And try and, I mean, my goal to answer my own question with this is I've learned so much from you, from living with you and being with you and just watching your intellectual, I find you to be incredibly rigorous intellectually in a way that I'm not. I'm pretty lazy. And <laughs> and you definitely are skeptic at heart and your default is to fact check everything, which has made me a much better journalist and just much better thinker and much better consumer of media. And I hope that people get to experience that aspect of you as well as get the benefit of your vast experience and knowledge and therapy because I do think you are a brilliant therapist and ask questions that are piercing and insightful. So I think, I hope that people get, I want, that's one of my goals is to expose people to the, I feel like I'm hogging you all to myself. (laughs) Wow, thank you. (laughs) That I get, so people get to benefit a lot of the knowledge that I'm just kind of soaking up just by virtue of being your wife. And I hope to have my own beliefs challenged constantly, even if I'm just rearranging my prejudices. Maybe that's the case. And I hope to, for me, I feel like my goal in the coming years is to pull up and out of the of the micro and more into the macro view of what is a successful life, what is a meaningful life, how can we rise above our own baser instincts and and how, I guess not even we, me, how can I rise up and out of the, I, sometimes I think I just hate who I am on social media because it's so easy to fall into those little fights and wars and to throw those zingers and it's fun (laughs) there's something fun about it sometimes more fun than others but yeah you have but it's destructive you have fun on there but i also see you have have it see it drive you because crazy every single thing is interpreted in the worst faith and that's the heart at a certain point you reach a certain level of engagement yeah and there's it doesn't no matter what you say. It will be, yeah, there's yeah. no charity and people just automatically hate you. There are accounts devoted to just hating you. And at a certain point, like my therapist has said, I come, why am I exposing myself to that? And I have to ask myself those hard questions because there's so much other stuff that I would rather be doing with my time. Truly, it's just not as easy. Yeah, what? What factory setting led you to self-loathing and worthlessness? She's always afraid that of me on Twitter and social media because she's like, all of this that you're describing reinforces what you believe about yourself at your core, which we've been trying to undo for years, which is that I'm worthless and a piece of shit. And I hear that 
on a daily basis. No matter how yeah. much you black out, it still gets there. Still, you still see it. This is the Frasier episode we watched <laughs> last night, where they did the focus group on his show, and eleven yeah. of twelve people were like, "It's amazing. I love the I show. I hate that episode." And one person <laughs> yes, went, I'm... "I don't, I don't like him. <laughs> I find him annoying." And Frasier goes bananas tracking this guy down to confront him <laughs> and burns down his your, newspaper your, stand your Frasier. i i hated that episode and it made me so uncomfortable because i know that that is that i'm capable of that that i can hear a million nice things and one person will be like you're a piece of shit and that's the thing that sticks out i've got some of that in me too i think many of us do because it's what I want to believe about myself. It's what I do well, it's believe. It's what you've been conditioned to believe, largely. Because I think you want to believe something else. I mean, do I? Tune in next time. <laughs> <laughs> On Factory Settings. If you like this podcast, consider subscribing to our Substack Beyond Parody with Bridget Fetisy, where you can ask questions, suggest topics, and get access to our bonus episodes. The link is in the description. This podcast is impossible without our co-producer, Cousin Maggie, and our composer, Jared Elias. Cello performed by Ben Baker. <laughs>